Today's reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, chapter two verses 8 to 11. If you're following in the church Bibles, it can be paid on, found on page 1234, the letter to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who I'd say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There we go. Apologies. Entirely my fault. I'd switch myself off and not switch myself back on again. Uh, good morning, everybody. My name's Jonathan G. I'm the vicar here. Uh, you are very welcome, uh, particularly if you're new here, if I can add my own welcome to that that Adam has given. And it's really good to have Andy from Open Doors with us uh, this morning. Let's pray that God will come and speak to us. Lord God, our Father, as we think about this suffering church in Smyrna all those years ago as we think about your people uh, suffering particularly in those 50 countries we saw earlier but all around the world we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, upon us on me as I speak on us as we listen may we hear your word to us today and strengthen us to be faithful to you in the circumstances we face and we ask it in your great name Amen. Uh, yesterday afternoon, Juliet and I took our youngest child. We have five children. The youngest is 19, so the whole house is very quiet now, apart from an elderly dog uh, who we're still quite fond of. But uh, we took Josh to Oxford yesterday where he is studying Arabic, of all things. And uh, pray for great blessing on him to get his head around that as a good ambassador for Jesus Christ. But it took me back to the time, amazingly 38 years ago, when I went up as a fresher to Oxford in the days when it was much easier to get in than it is now. Uh, I did maths there all those years ago, and I used to walk most days from my college up to the Maths Institute and pass this building. If we can put up the picture there, that one. Uh, that is known as the Martyrs Memorial in Oxford. It looks like a cathedral spire. But it's just a few yards from the spot where in October 1555, uh, Bishop Latimer and Bishop Ridley were burnt at the stake for their faith in Jesus Christ. They refused to compromise here in this country 450 years ago or so. Uh, a few months later, in March 1556, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer was burnt in the same place for refusing to deny his faith in Jesus and in the scriptures as the word of God. Uh, so in our country, we are privileged with the freedom we have, but it's been built on 
uh, the foundation of those who've given their lives. As we heard Bahir's story from Turkmenistan and pray that in all those countries, uh, gospel freedom will come in the years that lie ahead as we have it in this country. Uh, we're looking at these seven letters to the churches in Revelation. Um, if you're joining us today, Revelation is the last book of the Bible. Uh, a vision of the risen Jesus to the elderly apostle John. He was in exile, suffering for his faith on the island of Patmos, just next to modern-day Kos and Rhodes. And this letter was addressed to the worldwide church, but specifically to the seven churches uh, there that you see, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But really, this sevenfold church is a, a picture of the complete church. We talk about the sevenfold seas. This is a letter to the church of Christ down all the years and across all places. And we're looking for Jesus to speak to us particularly. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the church at Ephesus. They were a hardworking church. They were a sound church, but they'd lost their love for Jesus and the risen Jesus called them back to him. Uh, last week, we looked at Pergamon. We took it out of order so we could do Smyrna today, the suffering church, as we're doing uh, open doors. And we saw that the risen Jesus saw that lots that was good, but they needed to hold on to truth, particularly moral truth and living for Jesus. And we see in these letters the risen Jesus pointing out, this is what's good, this is what's bad. In one of the churches, we'll come to there's nothing good said about them. But in this church today, in Smyrna, there is nothing bad. The risen Jesus has no criticism at all for this church that was facing so much suffering. If we put the map up again, Joel, just for a minute. Uh, Smyrna there, number, number two, is the next one up from Ephesus. And if Ephesus was glorious, Smyrna was even more glorious. Smyrna today is the thriving city of Izmir, Turkey's third city. You can see how Izmir and Smyrna come from the same route. And today there are many churches there of different shapes and sizes. Ephesus uh, is just a pile of ruins, and many of the other churches are piles of ruins. But Smyrna, uh, there still are churches today, and you can go and visit them. Smyrna was equally prosperous 2,000 years ago as Ephesus. Uh, it was a beautiful city that had been rebuilt and the, had this lovely hill, Pagos Hill, and these beautiful buildings that were much newer than many of the other places, a library, a theatre, there was a garrison, there was a stadium for the games. Pagos Hill was the crown of Smyrna, shaped like a crown. Uh, the reason it was so beautiful was because the city had been destroyed in 600 BC, but Alexander the Great had ordered it rebuilt at great cost in about 300 BC. And so it was a city that had come back to life from the dead, and that was how they saw themselves. And so it's interesting that the risen Jesus addresses this letter to them, if we put verse 8 uh, of our letter up at the beginning. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. That was the story of Smyrna. But Jesus had died himself and really had come back to life again. Smyrna was fiercely loyal to Caesar, in AD 26, Smyrna had been chosen out of all the cities of Asia for a city to be built to Tiberius Caesar, and the city had gone wild with excitement, a bit like if a city gets the Olympic Games today. Uh, they were fanatics about Caesar, and they still were at the end of the first century. Now it's 90 or 95 AD, Domitian is the emperor, and the persecution of Christians has got worse. He demands that everybody in his empire burns incense to him, bows the knee and calls him Lord. 
And of course, Christians will not do that, no more than Bahia would do that, we heard in Turkmenistan uh, in our own day. For us, Jesus is Lord. We cannot say anybody else is Lord. And as a result, the Christians in Smyrna were persecuted for their faith, just as Bahia was in Turkmenistan today. And the risen Jesus says in verse 9 of our letter that I know your afflictions. The word means crushing weight, this terrible weight of persecution, the unrelenting pressure. Now, in our country, we face a little bit of snide opposition, but nothing that we could really call persecution. This is of a different level altogether, a crushing weight. And Jesus says he sees and he knows. And not only is there that persecution, but there's poverty in the church. Now, Smyrna was a rich city, so there was really no reason for anybody to be poor. But the Christians were, not only was there no social security, but many of them lost their jobs and their livelihoods because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. Many of them were persecuted and the authorities turned a blind eye to that. Uh, they were seen to be unpatriotic because they wouldn't uh, bow the knee to Caesar. And the risen Lord Jesus says, I know, I know these afflictions. If we put the verse back up, please, verse 9 still. Uh, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. He sees below the surface. On the surface, nothing very impressive about the church in Smyrna. But we know God looks below the surface. Do you remember the story of when Samuel went to anoint David as king? 1 Samuel 16, 7. We read this. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And he saw below the afflictions and poverty a rich treasure of love for him and devotion among his people there. It's exactly the opposite of what we will see when we come to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3.17. He says this, you say to the church in Laodicea, I'm rich, I've got wealth and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Uh, the riches of this world can blind our eyes to the spiritual reality of what's going on. Uh, all the people who are paraded in celebrity magazines like Hello Magazine, who've got, in a sense, the perfect lifestyle, actually so many of them, so miserable. Uh, mostly not all of them. Uh, but I had a friend who was vicar of St. Michael's Chester Square a few years ago. He said, I'd been into every uh, house in this square, one of the richest squares in London. He said, I could not take you into one happy home that what the world sees on the surface and what the reality is underneath are very different things. So if we go back to verse 9, the risen Jesus sees that on the surface this church is poor, afflicted, and struggling. But underneath is a treasure. And it's interesting that it's this city uh, that is still alive and there are churches there today. I think in the West, and particularly in the Church of England, we're facing a bit of a crossroads. Uh, what are we going to choose? Certainly, we could no longer say in the West that we are poor. In global terms, we're very rich. But equally in the West, the church is not very good at saying Jesus is Lord and bowing the knee to him uh, in the face of pressure. And that pressure is only going to increase in the years that come along the, over the next few years as it seems that more laws are passed uh, in this country as well as in Europe, uh, which make it harder to live with Jesus as Lord and not come into conflict with the authorities. We will have to choose. And it may be that the pressure we face 
bumps up a notch. Still nothing like what these guys are facing, what Bahir faces uh, today and people like him today, or what the church of Smyrna faced. They faced this horrible slander. Now we know a little bit of snide comments, but the sort of thing that was going on 2,000 years ago was this. Uh, they were accused of being cannibals. The reason is people would have got hold of the fact that at their central worship, as we have communion, we have the bread and the wine representing the body and blood of Jesus. We pray that they would be to us by faith, uh, Jesus himself. It was put around that they were cannibals eating flesh and blood, and that didn't endear them to people. It was put around that their feasts were orgies. Um, the word agape used of, a of the, the Greek word for love, the love of God. Uh, but it was put around that these were love feasts where they ate flesh and blood and where it was lot, there was lots of immorality. It was put around that they were atheists. They had no idols, they had no temples, they didn't believe in gods. It was put around that they were disloyal to Caesar and they were persecuted. Now, none of that is easy to hear. The word slander comes from the Greek blasphemio uh, because if you slander God's people, Jesus sees you are blaspheming him. He is the Lord. He is it's his church. We are his body. And Jesus says, I know. Now, none of us face that sort of affliction. But if you're facing pressure for your faith in different ways, the risen Jesus says, he knows. He knows. Then he says to them in Smyrna that worse is to come. Verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Uh, numbers in Revelation aren't literal. That means for a limited period of time. They would probably be many years. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as the victor's crown. The early Christians were no strangers to prison. Peter and John had been in prison in Acts. Paul had been in prison pretty much everywhere he went. Uh, still in many parts of the world today, as we heard in North Korea, if you own a Bible, that's enough to put you in prison for life. And our brothers and sisters face this extraordinary persecution. The Lord Jesus allows it for a season. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that the pressures we face uh, purify our faith, like gold in a furnace purifies fire. When we go through different pressure and stay faithful to the Lord... Uh, our faith becomes more and more precious. This treasure that he sees within is purified. It is for a limited time, though it wouldn't have felt that way to them. Uh, the opposition was so fierce that it would end in death for various people, most famously to Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was the ancient bishop of Smyrna who was martyred in AD 155. But at the time when this letter was written... Polycarp was a young man in his 20s or 30s. Uh, it's rumored that the apostle John himself had appointed Polycarp to lead the church to be the bishop of Smyrna. And he stayed faithful all this time uh, up to the middle of the second century. Polycarp was martyred. There was a great games going on in Smyrna. The crowd were well excited and they started chanting death to the atheists. That meant death to the Christians. And they started chanting send for Polycarp. Now, Polycarp had been in hiding uh, because he, people close to him reckoned he was going to be in trouble. But a slave was tortured and gave away Polycarp's hiding place. And the captors came to get him. He asked for an hour to pray and made sure they were given food and drink while, 
while, he waited, while they waited for him. And then they took him up Pagos Hill, the crown of Smyrna, into the stadium to face uh, whatever would come his way. And I want to quote to you from an account from the time. Uh, this is an amazing book. Eusebius, an ancient church historian, has translated, or we've got translated, all the ancient church documents. There aren't that many of them, not like the internet today where there are millions of them. There's a limited number of church, from church history in those early years. But let me pick up the story where the ancient Polycarp is brought into the... Uh, brought into the stadium on Pagos Hill, the crown of Smyrna. As Polycarp was entering the stadium, there came a voice to him from heaven, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. The speaker no one saw, but the voice was heard by those of our friends who were present. Then he was brought forward, and great was the din as they heard that Polycarp was arrested. So he was brought before the proconsul, who asked him if he was Polycarp. He said yes, and the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny his faith. Have respect to your old age, and the rest of it, according to the customary form. Swear by the genius of Caesar. Change your mind and say, away with the atheists, away with the Christians. Polycarp looked with a stern countenance on the multitude of lawless heathen gathered in the stadium and waved his hands at them and looked up heaven with a groan and said, away with the atheists. Uh, he wasn't playing it safe. The proconsul continued insisting and saying, swear and I release you, curse the Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? The proconsul continued to persist and said, swear by the genius of Caesar. Polycarp said, if you vainly imagine that I would swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, pretending you're ignorant of who I am, hear plainly, I am a Christian, and if you're willing to learn the doctrine of Christianity, appoint a day and listen. Uh, the proconsul wasn't interested. He said, I have wild beasts. If you will not change your mind, I will throw you to them. Polycarp said, bid them be brought. Change of mind from better to worse is not a change that we are allowed, but to change from wrong to right is good. The proconsul said, if you despise the beasts, unless you change your mind, I shall have you burned. But Polycarp said, you threaten the fire that burns for an hour, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of the judgment to come and of everlasting punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why delay? Do what you wish. And the eyewitnesses talk about how when the fire was lit, he died praying to his God for God's glory, much as those martyrs in Oxford did four or 500 years ago. It's an amazing story. And when we hear the stories of Bahir of Turkmenistan today or of Polycarp of old... We feel so unworthy, feel so pathetic in our faith compared to them. I'm sure that Polycarp had this verse 10 in his mind. Uh, what was the words of the risen Jesus to the church in Smyrna as he died? Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Now our situation is very different in the West today. Yes, we face mild opposition, but nothing like that. But I'm sure the risen Jesus says to you and me and to us at St. Paul's today the same two words, be faithful. We may not face the crippling poverty or the vicious slander or the persecution, but we all know a certain amount of pressure to compromise our faith. And the risen Jesus, the whole New Testament, tells us to be faithful. 
To be true to Christ's standards invites us to live a narrow, to walk a narrow path, to call people to repentance of their sin, to say that the road to hell is broad and it winds up in a terrible place and we call people to repent. We are called to lift our eyes to the Lord Jesus. As uh, here in Revelation, the church is called to lift their eyes to him. Uh, As Bahir said, I jotted down this as Andy spoke, tell them every time you tell my story, if I had to go through that again, I would, because Jesus is worth it. And we need that vision of Jesus. The vision of Jesus we get in verse 8 of our letter, uh, that he is the first and the last. That is a name that God ascribes to himself in Isaiah. Uh, That he knows in verse 9, he sees uh, everything. In fact, that Jesus has experienced the worst that this world could throw at him when he died on the cross and said, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it feels like for the people who face this terrible persecution. That he values us. And he offers this crown, if we put up verse 10, please, of our reading again. Uh, That's verse 9. Let's go to verse 10. There we are. Uh, Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a crown. Not the fading laurel crown that the winners in the games got then. Not even the gold medal that the people we've been watching in the world championships get. But the eternal crown that lasts forever. The last verse of the letter, verse 11, says this. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. What's that? Well, the scriptures talk about us dying twice, once physically, and then for those who are not Christians, there's a spiritual death that comes. We need to be forgiven by Jesus. If we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, the second death doesn't touch us. The end of the book of Revelation just teases this out a bit for us. Chapter 20 and verse 6 says this, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. That is the privilege of those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus. When the heavens and the earth are made new, we are with him for eternity. Uh, Verses 14 to 15 of Revelation 20. Right at the end of time, when the world is renewed, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is all picture language, but it's language of ultimately there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, which Christ reigns over, the kingdom of light, and there's the kingdom of darkness. When someone is baptized, we give them a candle to symbolize they belong to the kingdom of light. In this world, we're all jumbled up together, but ultimately there are two destinations. And if we're faithful to Christ in this life, uh, he is faithful to us and we wind up with him for all eternity. Uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, verses 5 to 8. Uh, he says, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. They will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. 
We need courage. I think courage is a good word for faith, certainly for the people of Smyrna, for Bahia. To trust Jesus takes courage. And we pray that he would give us courage to stay faithful to him, whatever we face, even if it's just the very gentle, snide comments that many of us face from time to time. Jesus knows. And I hope that hearing about the martyrs from church history, or just a few of them, encourages you to stand firm. I looked up the quote to get it right of what Bishop Latimer said to Bishop Ridley when they were burnt at the stake in Oxford in 1555. He said this, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Praise God, it hasn't been put out yet. It nearly was uh, in Wesley's day before Wesley led the National Revival. There's a sense that it's been trying to be put out in our day. But praise God, the church is actually doing quite well. uh, And we need to stay faithful to Jesus and keep this candle burning brightly. So that's what we're going to pray. Would you stand as we come to pray? And if the band would come back and we'll commit all this to the Lord and have just a moment of quiet for ourselves. Lord Jesus, we bow in your presence. You are the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. You faced the worst that this world could throw at you when you died on the cross for our sin. And you rose again, and we praise you that you are ascended and glorified. So pour out your Holy Spirit, we pray, on your church today, throughout the world, throughout this nation, here at St. Paul's, and on each one of us. We pray that you would write on our hearts the truths of who Jesus really is, We pray that you give us a sense in our innermost being of your love stronger than death for each one of us. And we pray that you would give us courage to be faithful to you in the days that lie ahead. So come Holy Spirit. Let's just keep a moment of quiet. Maybe particular things you want to say to the Lord or listen for things he wants to bring to your attention. But let's be still. we were praying before the service just a few things came to mind that we think will be significant for one or two here one was these words of scripture the Lord is with you he will never leave you nor forsake you There's nowhere we can go apart from the love of God there was a picture of a father encouraging his young children weren't sure whether they could do whatever it was they were trying to do saying well done you can do it father would you encourage us to be faithful to you in the situations we face. There's also a picture of a sort of toy volcano that looked like it was about to explode and water being poured on it. The sense there may be someone that's just so much going on inwardly, it feels like something's about to go. And the Lord wants to pour his water on that fire that the unhealthy one, to give you a peace. I'd love to pray for you later if that's you. As we often sing in in a song, God's love is higher than the mountains that we face, stronger than the powers of the grave. 
So, Lord Jesus, continue to pour your spirit on us, we pray, as we worship you, as we sing your praise. And may these words that we sing be written on our hearts, that we would live them out Monday to Saturday, as well as singing them here on Sunday. And as we worship you, we pray your great blessing on Bahir, wherever he is today, and on people like him around the world. Praise you for their courage. Give us more of it. And we ask all of this in your great name. Amen.